Hello and welcome to Running on Joy with Francesca Goodwin, the podcast that celebrates putting one foot in front of the other in whatever form that takes. This is a podcast that explores how we can live in a more connected, creative and compassionate manner for the benefit of our communities, our planet and our own mental and physical health. I'm your host, Francesca Goodwin, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what joy means to them. Running on Joy is ad-free, but if you enjoy the show, please do take a moment to leave a review and give feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might also consider supporting the work of Running on Joy guest Dan Lawson through rubbish shoes and rerun clothing to end the cycle of wastage in the sports clothing and footwear industries. Follow at Rubbish Shoes and at Rerun.Clothing on Instagram for further information. Hello everyone, my guest today could be called the 200 mile man, but it's the messaging behind the miles that perhaps most distinguishes them, as well as the actual feats of endurance. They're an ultra distance runner, originally from Wales, and are the current British record holder for the Merb 240 race in Utah, and the first Welshman to complete this race, Bigfoot 200 and Cocodona 250, as well as being the second ever Welshman to complete Badwater 135. They started their ultramarathon journey running from Boston to Austin, a total of 2,000 miles or 75 marathons in 75 days. Through these challenges, they've raised over £87,000 for a variety of different charities. In 2015, they completed an Operation Smile mission where they assisted in screening and in theatre for the repair of cleft lips and palates. Since then, they've been selected as one of three UK ambassadors for the charity. Some of these adventures may be ringing bells with the attentive among you since I interviewed their brother a few episodes back, who is also a fan of pushing the limits of possibility. I will now, however, invite them to introduce themselves since this is their journey and their story. Welcome to the podcast. Well, well, th- thank you for that lovely introduction. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I think trying to think about the, the best way to introduce myself. So I should start with my name, I suppose. So, yeah, my name's Scott Jenkins. I am uh, an ultra runner in my spare time uh, outside of work. And my perspective on life is that when I get older in life, I, I want to look back on the things that I've achieved and think, OK, you know, I'm proud of that. I've had some adventure um, but most importantly, done a bit of good along the way. And, and for me, you know, I try to do that through the, the format of running and go and run long distances to raise money for the charity, which I support is Operation Smile and I'm very proud to support them. And I just think, you know, when we truly get older in life, the things that we b- will remember will be the times where, you know, you've shared that adventure with your friends, with your family, when your colleagues gone out, done something that's challenging, but at the same time, contributed to try and help other people's lives be better and that's me I guess yeah I guess that's it's interesting isn't it there's that kind of adage of actions speak louder than words but actually it's a it's the combination of those things isn't it that really makes the impact yeah I, I think so and I think I learned that through you, you touched on when we were doing the introduction there the 75 marathons in 75 days 
Um, that was the first big challenge that myself and my brother and our friend Rusty from Texas went out and, and did together back in 2010. And what I, I really realized through that were two things. I think the first thing was that anything is, is really possible. I know it's a cliche if you put your mind to it, but it's true. Like I, I didn't think I'd ever go and run 2000 miles, but I figured it out and found a way to do it. Um, and I think the, the second thing for me was that actually, you know, by trying to get out and, and do an action, um, which kind of makes people sit up and go, okay, that's, that's pretty difficult. Um, it can actually you know, benefit other people in other ways through the, the charitable fundraising side of things. So yeah, actions do speak louder than words. And Scott, has that always been the case for you? Can you kind of paint a picture of what growing up was like for you, family life and kind of your relationship with um, with sports at that time as well? Yeah, sure. So um, I grew up in a small seaside town in South Wales, a town called Panarth. Um, yeah, very proud to, to be from there. And me and my brother, we always played football um, and, and a little bit of rugby too. I wasn't so good at rugby, but I was all right at football and um, kind of got, got you know, carried on playing that till the age of 30 and then decided that I wanted to focus on, on, on the running side of things. So stopped playing football. But as a young kid, I, I can remember... Uh, doing certain things that involved like at the time what seemed long distance for me like I can remember doing a, a run for kidney research I think it must be kidney research Wales or kidney research UK as like a 10 or 11 year old just around the town that I lived and it was probably like I don't know four or five miles but I can remember thinking wow that's such a long distance um, and even you know in secondary school running around the perimeter of the uh, the school, which had, you know, big playing fields. And I can remember everyone would think, oh, wow, that's such a long way to run. Um, and it's funny how your perspective changes over the years as we get older, right? And you learn a lot of lessons. But the one that I definitely learned was, actually, that's not that far. You can probably go a lot further if you put your mind and your body to it, for sure. Um, but I, I had the great upbringing. My parents are really good to us. And um, I think they always instilled us in a, in a belief in the a resilience to want to work hard and, and get things done, but to also you know treat people with respect, treat people how you'd want to be treated yourself and and just be kind to other people. I've come to realize again through perspective as you get older that actually, you know, some of the happiest times for me are, are some of the most challenging times. Like when you're out in the mountains running through the night for the third night in a row, it's minus four, you're at 10,000 feet, you feel so alive and and kind of you know, just driven to to want to challenge yourself. And I think we get that from being outdoors. I think that as a youngster, I, I enjoyed it. I was in Cubs and Scouts and all those kind of things. But I think, you know, somewhere along the, on the way, we as humans have mistaken comfort for happiness. You know, we get these sedentary lives where we're sat or we're driving, we're commuting. And actually, you know, when you go out, I'm sure you've had this yourself, when you go out for a run in the rain, sometimes you get back and you feel so alive. And it's like, that's what we were meant to do as human beings. You know, we were meant to chase our dinner for four days in a row. And, you know, it would keel over. And obviously, if you're a meat eater, uh, you'd be able to tuck into the horse or whatever it was back in the day. Um, not that I eat horse, strictly cow and chicken, but just to clarify, just to clarify. Um, but you get the point, right? That's how we return to our food. Now everything's just given to us on a plate and um, it's all convenience based. And actually, you know, going out and having these challenges has pushed me to enjoy my own life and, and understand that I can push myself to do you know, what 
I suppose are hard things, but also doing that bit of good alongside it as well at the same time. You know, I'll be out on these long runs like Moab or Bad Water, and the thought does occur to me, you kind of think, well, I wonder what this was like for the first people that, you know, they're traveling west through the United States and they're probably making a decision. Can we go over that mountain range? Well, you know, we've probably only got enough water for one day, but we haven't really got a choice. And then all of a sudden finding themselves in the vicinity of Death Valley, where it's like 52 degrees. What was that like for, for people back in the day? And I guess you do kind of catch yourself when you're, you're out in these very special places. I feel very fortunate to be able to get out and, and do these things, and I don't take it for granted. Um, but to, to go out there and, and be in the elements like that, you do learn so much about yourself um, that you never knew. These reserves that you never knew you really had, and it's something that I wish more people could get to experience for sure. Mm, and uh, yeah I think it's interesting also because America sort of has that tradition as well of the way that messages were carried by by runners in, in relay and also the Pony Express and things as well yeah. there's a history of that in in Japan too and I guess we forget that actually we were we were made to run <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah exactly um there was uh was it ancient Athens like you know when um I, I think there was uh the very first or one of the very first ultra of uh, distances recorded in history was to do with a messenger being sent from Athens to Sparta to ask the Spartans for their help and now you've got a race of course called Spartathlon which takes yeah. place from Athens to Greece so we do have that history and yeah we've lost it somewhere and bizarrely when I go to these races that are 200 250 miles long you kind of do kind of forget about everything outside in the modern civilized world and it's just you versus the elements it's you versus the mountains the the desert and and moving through that landscape and yeah something quite almost releasing and relieving about that in a way because I work in a very corporate environment and what I do in my spare time is the complete opposite of that but it gives you so you know I come back and people are like well, you must be knackered after going away on holiday and, and doing a race for four days. I'm like, no, I feel really alive. I feel really mm. energized because I've gone out and had these experiences that we don't get to have as humans anymore, which I think is very special and something I feel very lucky, as I say, to do. Yeah, I guess what people might refer to as a, a kind of grounding experience that that getting back into a into a nat more natural manner of of movement and and being and chasing and yeah. <laughs> existing and, some, and relying on yourself yeah. there's some happiness to be sought in suffering that you choose to put yourself through i think <laughs> and talking of, of of suffering um i chatted to reese a little bit about the that first incredible plunge into ultra distance running with the boston to <laughs> boston journey and i just i think this is a wonderful opportunity to get your perspective on that as well and just to reflect on your own motivations for doing it um having also come from little previous experience before jumping yep. straight in to 2000 miles <laughs> yeah it was um somewhat cavalier um maybe somewhat naive um not through lack of planning or expertise but just from understanding what it takes to run that kind of distance you know, I feel very fortunate to have had that experience with my brother and, and Rusty, our friend, and 
John and Adam, the guys that were crewing us, you know, they did a fantastic job in looking after us as well. It was it was very physically demanding, but also mentally very demanding as well. Not just on the running side of things, because you know the running kind of took takes care of itself. You get up, you try and run a marathon distance during the course of the day, and you finish running. The thing is, you know, if you're running a city marathon on a one-off, you've got a hotel, you know, where you're going to stay, you know, what you're going to eat, you know, you looked after, you know, when you're, you know, five mid 20 year old boys running across America, um, it's, it's a little bit different. You know, you've got all kinds of personalities in the mix, but also you've got, um, you know, close proximity in terms of living, which creates kind of stress, but add to that the fact that, you know, every night we didn't know where we were staying we didn't know what we were eating we we're basically just surviving on the side of the road for 75 days it's extremely kind of difficult endeavor to put yourself through and um one that i feel very fortunate to have shared because i feel feel like it was in reflection now some 13 years later probably quite a life changing moment for for all of us that we didn't really realize or truly take in at the time because we were absolutely knackered to be fair um but it's something that I'll never forget and an experience that I feel very fortunate again to have had um, and one that we were able to help a lot of charities on as well. So it was a great, great trip, um, but very exhausting as well at the same time. Did you discover new things and did your relationship change with your brother during that time? Um, yeah, I definitely discovered new things. I think for, for me, it was about the capability to just keep pushing through day after day. Um, I think we probably learned more about each other, you know, what we like, what we don't like, as siblings do. I think boys as well intend to generally, maybe this is uh, kind of me just summing things up in general, but you tend to bottle up your emotions and we don't talk as much about our emotions. I think that's just a male thing in general. And I think, you know, we both do things that annoy each other and we do both do things that we love about each other as well. And I think that's the same in every sibling uh relationship for sure but very proud of everything that he's gone on to achieve in in ultra running and um yeah i feel like we're, we're very lucky that um bizarrely we were both born with this ability to go and run ridiculous uh distances and uh, you know we've never really sat down and said oh let's make sure we do everything from now on for for charity but um, that's the conclusion that we've both come to separately and you know we're both doing the same thing which is really nice. And are you sort of grateful in a way for that naivety with which you went into that? Uh, yeah I, I, I think yeah maybe naivety is the wrong word I think maybe you know I use that myself but maybe just you, you kind of don't really realize what you're jumping off into you know you run a marathon and then you're like oh uh, we've got nowhere to stay so what do we do? And then you're forced into a situation where you're like, okay, well, we'll drive to the nearest town, which is all right when you've got some budget at the beginning of the run. But what do you do on day 45 when you're in the middle of Arkansas and, you know, funds are dwindling? We're not millionaires or anything like that. And we were kind of going into hotels and saying, hey, look, this is what we're doing. We're doing this for charity. Would you be able to donate a, a bedroom for the night? Or, you know, would you be able to give us 50% off or whatever it might be? And actually, you know, those skills, those negotiation skills, when I didn't really have much to negotiate with, was I was kind of forced into those situations. I think before the event, probably would have been very embarrassed to, to have that kind of conversation. I'm sure we all would, right? But, you know, 
having been forced into that situation again through naivety or one of a better phrase um we you know i found new skills that allowed me to realize actually i was quite good at negotiating and funnily enough then end up eventually working in a career in sales so it's very strange how things work out sometimes right yeah and it's interesting um one thing i wanted to come on to was that um flow over from from running into into everyday life and do you find that is something that's quite consistent oh definitely definitely i i think um you know when i was younger and you played you know sport like rugby or football or whatever it is you know i think guys as we get older in life as most people do you mature and you learn more about yourself and you learn to put things into perspective problems into perspective um, to give you an example of that, you know, if we were working on a conversion of a large sales account in in work, it's a big goal, right? You know, there's going to be lots of ups and downs along the way, lots of setbacks, a lot of hurdles to climb over. And sure, you could just hold your hands up and walk away when you encounter those setbacks. Or you can find a way to kind of calm things down, keep things level and, and continue to move forward towards that big goal. Now, bear with me on the analogy, but ultra running is a very similar thing. You know, when I go and race a 250 mile race, you know, it's such a long distance. You know that it's a big goal. You know, there's going to be major problems that you encounter along the way. You're going to get tired. You're going to get exhausted. You know, you, you may get you know, a lot of heat you know, from the from the sun. It could be 52 degrees. It could be minus four. You may have to climb up mountains. You may encounter wildlife, all those kind of things. But again, you know, it's about encountering those problems and, and getting up and finding a way to to move past them as a you know, kind of peaks and troughs of life and peaks and troughs of ultra runners. Same thing. It's just trying to put problems into perspective and move forward. And you mentioned um, just before that about that you um, have great admiration for the things that Reese has gone on to do. Um, are you also someone who's always immediately thinking of the next challenge <laughs> yeah yeah definitely um I think sometimes that's probably to my detriment as well I think that um to give you an example of that when I finished Badwater in in 2021 um I was already fixated about the race I had you know two and a half weeks later back in the states I had to fly from Death Valley back to London, work for two weeks, come back to the States, go up to the Pacific Northwest to race, um, which was exhausting. And I never took the time to kind of sit down and just reflect on the, the situation because I was already moving ahead to the next race. And I think that's, you know, sometimes in life we work towards these big accomplishments and goals. And it's something that I wanted to do for 10 years. And then I'd got there and I probably forgot, you know, in hindsight to st step back and go, you know that was pretty significant it was a good moment um and take it in and think that's that's another thing i've learned through running is actually now i need to kind of reflect on these things when you achieve them because the opportunity to achieve them is only limited in our lifetime right so we've got to take the time to enjoy things and i'd encourage your listeners to do the same whatever goal they're working towards mm, absolutely but what is it also specifically about pushing your limits both mentally and physically that appeals to you <laughs> um it's a good question again as well i i think there's the so when you're working in a high stress environment you know in in a corporate environment coming outside and, and testing yourself physically and mentally in a different way is quite appealing 
I recently started bouldering, uh, indoor bouldering, just in the evenings, just not for any great you know competition or anything, other than it was a good activity to do in the evenings and it challenged me mentally and physically. And I found I really enjoyed that. Um, so maybe it's something about my personality. I think there's a, an element of, you know, it's really appealing to kind of see, you know, I'm sure if you went back, hundred years you said to someone they're going to run 200 miles you might think they're, they're completely crazy but actually as we move forward as a species different goals become achievable you know like the four minute mile you know what's the next goal is it 300 miles 400 miles whatever it could be and I think you know trying to find my own personal boundaries with within that is something that appeals to me during my lifetime um I think from a mental perspective ultra running is a great challenge because you know, you start the first day and you're fresh as a daisy, but when you've been running for 80 hours, making the right decisions mentally uh, becomes extremely challenging. Um, and the, the the bigger challenge on top of that is the fact that if you make a bad mistake mentally, let's take an example of leave an aid station at 200 miles without a water bottle and go up into 10,000 feet mountains, you know, that can potentially put you in a life-threatening situation. So, you know, making big calls when you're mentally exhausted is um, is challenging. And it's only going to get worse and worse the longer that you're out there on the trail. But obviously that, that affects your physical uh, performance as well. So both of those things appeal to me in, in summary and in different ways. And I, I love it. Absolutely love it. I guess there's the notion of um, kind of accountability there or how we hold ourselves accountable too, because although, you know, you have crew and, and you have aid stations with volunteers and things, ultimately in those races, the buck stops with you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, you know, I've been very fortunate. And as one thing I did want to say, like very fortunate to share these adventures with my friends and my family and my colleagues. And uh, I love that element of it because I think it's very special because not everyone wants to go and run 200 miles, but you may be able to convince them to come to somewhere beautiful to to kind of share some of that adventure. And every buckle I've ever got in these long races is is all down to the support that I've had from friends and family and colleagues, as I say. So I think there's something very special uh, about that. And then, yeah, the buck does stop with you ultimately because they're out there, you know, getting just as tired as you are. Maybe they're pacing you or the aid station um but you know i've been in situations i did a race last year called bigfoot 200 where we had a mountain lion encounter and you know it's it's pretty scary when it's like two o'clock in the morning you know it's misty rainy and you can hear like purring in the forest and you're like mm, i'm no longer top of the uh, food chain here there's actually an apex predator in in the midst to speak um but you've put yourself in that situation. You've got to get out of it and you take the risks and you you know that they're there because ultimately you, you will have that adventure. And I just think it'd be boring to move through life with not experiencing some level of adventure. Um, but as I said earlier, if you can couple that with doing something good to help other people, then I think that's a nice place to be, really. Goodness, I'm just reflecting on thinking, hmm, that's not a tabby cat in the dark. Well, <laughs> actually, yeah, that generally did go through my mind. And again, to your point about being mentally, you know, challenged, I, I was taking a nap on the floor at the time and I heard this purring noise and I was in a foil blanket and I did the typical thing when you're exhausted. I just rolled over to the other side and about 15 minutes went past and the guy that was running along with me, we teamed up during the night, came over, he said, dude, 
do you hear that purring noise? And I was like, yeah, no, I thought, I just thought I'd imagined it. I thought I'd just imagined it. He was like, no, man, there's there's definitely a cat. And I'm like, well, what kind of cat, Wes? And he went, well, it's a, it's a mountain lion. And then our pacer joined us, who'd also just been kind of sat on the trail. And she said, guys, you, you've got to be so careful. There's a mountain lion. I can hear it. I just haven't seen it. And I was like, wow, okay, we, uh, we are really deep in it right now. That's where you're wishing that you were hallucinating at that yeah, point. Yeah, that's definitely the one where you're like, hmm, life choices, maybe I should have. <laughs> no, I wouldn't change it. It was a great experience. I'm learning all of these things, but. <laughs> <laughs> and you said there again about, um, you know, you're doing this for a, a, a bigger picture, a bigger cause as well. And you have raised a phenomenal amount um, yeah. for charity over the years through exploring those limits and I wonder did that drive to give back um kind of precede running was running more a vehicle for you to be able to do those things and 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 give to these charities um or kind of is is running a sort of a pursuit in itself as well I think um I think they kind of went nearly hand in hand right because when we were planning Boston to Austin me, Reese, and Rusty all picked a different challenge, uh, challenge charity, I beg your pardon. So they, we had um, uh, Salute America's Heroes, uh, Help the Heroes, and the British Heart Foundation. I picked the British Heart Foundation. The reason I picked the British Heart Foundation is because um, I was working in a gym at the time as a personal trainer, and there was a guy called Colin who used to come into the gym every week, be lashing it down, you know, South Wales in the April time, and uh, every week he'd come in and I kind of say to him, you know, Colin, why are you so happy? And he just said to me, well, you know, I feel like I've got a second chance at life. And the thing with Colin was that he, he'd had a heart attack. He'd had stents fitted um, and he, you know, he'd been through a life changing situation. And it kind of made me realize, you know, what am I doing with my own life? You know, I've got a job which I really like and work with great people that I really enjoyed. But it kind of made me think, actually, I've never truly pushed myself outside of my comfort zone and and that's where the kind of I guess it didn't supersede it but it kind of sparked the idea of actually you know maybe I should do something to try and raise money for the British Heart Foundation to help people like Colin um and that kind of grew out of there and you know the discussions led to run into Boston to Austin kind of went from zero to 100 really quick um and then yeah next thing you know you're on the plane to Boston to to run 2,000 miles um so yeah it's uh it's something that stuck with me all this time is what you said about having a second chance at life. And I thought, well, I've got to make the most of my first chance first. And I guess he's he was doing what he could with that chance that he'd been given. So exactly. I, I guess that must have been quite a profound message to you as well of, well, if I'm able to do this, then I should. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why not? Why not get out there and push yourself and do some good? And could you just talk a little bit more about um, Operation Smile and the work that they do? I just wanted to give you yeah. the, the chance to yeah. do that. I'd, I'd love to. Thank you for asking. Um, Operation Smile are a children, a, ch- a charity, I should say, that um, correct children's uh, cleft lip and cleft palate deformities all around the world. Um, so they literally put smiles on on people's faces, and I think. Yeah, what a wonderful thing and something that we take for granted. You know, when we came on the call this evening, it's a Zoom call and, you know, we smiled each other and you create that warmth and that bond. Right. And to not have that in life must be so difficult. You know, 
and in the societies where third world you know developing countries where this kind of deformities are quite prevalent you know people with them are, are kind of ostracized from society because they can't eat they can't drink and you know they're kind of cast aside and costs 150 pounds to to correct someone's smile 150 pounds to change someone's life so that you know that direct impact me knowing that means that every time I lace up my my trainers to go and run for Operation Smile I'm just thinking right can I raise as many smiles as I possibly can and um, yeah I want to try and get to 100 smiles um, raised for Operation Smile uh, by the end of this year that would be really cool if I can do that but I love the work that the charity does I was very fortunate to go on one of their missions, um, so I was 15 or 16 to a small town in Michele in uh, Ethiopia. And it was just a remarkable thing. It's something that stuck with me for, you know, I'm sure for the rest of my life. So I'm just out there trying to help them as best I can and, and hopefully put some smiles on people's faces at the same time. Thank you so much, Scott. I, I just want oh. to pause at this point and just say thank you for all the incredible work that you do. honestly thank you so much that is really really kind of you to say and yeah it means a lot thank you and on your um on your <laughs> very extensive cv there's a variety both of kind of the self-led challenges um and the races as well and i'm curious you know we've been talking about doing these things for charity as well but what does competition give you um <laughs> I'm not sure it gives me that much other than a bit of structure to the race. Um, <laughs> I know this this sound, might sound a bit silly because I, I don't really finish on the podium, but I would swap finishing on a podium in an ultra race for raising you know, the seven smiles that I want to get uh, for this year, which would take me to 100 smiles raised for Operation Smile so far um, by the end of the year. I, I would swap finishing on the podium for that. that, that that's more important to me. Um but the competition element, um, I'm not sure. Like, I, I like it. I like you know knowing that I've got a race against other people. I also like the fact that I can go out and have these adventures outside of my work time because it's difficult to to build self kind of created challenges outside of my my day job. You know, I've got a lot on. Um, so to be able to just go right. June, I'm going to go and run 200 miles in Lake Tahoe. All I got to do is train and turn up, and you know we can we can go from there. So like, I think my best result was 15th at the Moab 240, which I'm I'm delighted with. You know, I'm very happy with that. Um, obviously, it'd be nice to finish in the top 10 uh, at some point, and we'll see how this year goes. I've been training my best to to try and achieve that, but it doesn't really matter whether I finish first, fifth, tenth. 90th doesn't really matter if I can to do some good at the same time as, as having that adventure that's what matters that's the key thing for me and I want to come on to the 240 but I know that you also have um like your brother quite a long-standing relationship with a particular bad water 135 too yeah. um, I wondered if you could just talk about how that relationship started how it's developed and what your experiences it's a love-hate um, relationship on that, that one, sure. 
Uh, absolutely love the race. Um, hate that it's so difficult, but you know what? It, it wouldn't be a challenge if the uh, positive outcome would be guaranteed, in my opinion. So taking on a challenge like Badwater is as tough as it gets, in in my humble opinion, in, in the world of running. Um, so Badwater, for those of you listeners that perhaps aren't familiar with it, is a 135-mile non-stop foot race across uh, Death Valley. Um, for it to, to be an official race, it needs to take place in July. Uh, it always takes place in July every year. Um, it's an invite-only race. The race director there, Chris Cosman, um, ensures that only uh, people with uh, a sufficient kind of history and uh, CV and in kind of ultra running experience uh, and who live the kind of bad water lifestyle, as he says, um, get invited to it. So, you know, feel very fortunate that you know, me and my brother have both been um, invited to that race twice, which is unbelievable, really. Um, uh, not twice, sorry, once. I, I, Reese has been twice, but uh, I've been once, I should say. So, slight amendment to that, but we've both been fortunate enough to have completed it. And he was the first Welshman and I was the second Welshman, which I think is, you know, I just feel very, very proud of that. It's, it's so nice to to share that with my brother, I guess. Um, it would be really nice for us both to turn up to the race in the same year at some point. So, that's the goal. The next goal, I think, for us to, to be the first brothers to finish the race in the same year, that would be really cool um, and something that I'd be proud to you know represent the UK on doing. But it's an incredibly difficult race. The temperatures get, get over to 52 uh, degrees Celsius. You know, it's hot enough that your shoes don't melt, but they start to break down a lot quicker. The rubber starts falling off and all that kind of thing. Um, and you're running on tarmac. So you've got to remember that, it's all the blacktop tarmac that they get out there. So the heat reflects off the tarmac. Uh, and basically the, the the heat of the floor can be in excess of you know, 160, 170, <laughs> which is just insane. It's like they, it's like running on the sun, I would say, I would imagine. <laughs> and I mean, because I've um I listened to Debbie Martin Consani reflecting on her her time there this year, and she's from Scotland. And one of the things is saying, you know, this is especially difficult because I'm Scottish and I'm going out to Death Valley in July. And really, the training conditions over in the UK don't really prep you for doing that. Really, it's a very interesting. One is something I've actually I was reflecting on it last week. I was out for a run with um, Susie Chan, who's one of the peloton instructors who is also been invited to do the race this year great ultra runner and laura watts who's also run the race um ran it last year i was there i was there when debbie did it i proved for laura last year and um i remember debbie saying you know it's really really hot and i was like yeah and then, you know we were having the conversation last week me and laura and um i i said that you know we're being from you know europe from wales from england scotland's we're, we're, we're not bred to be in that kind of temperature. If you're living in Southern California and training for that all year round in that kind of heat, you're going to have a big advantage and not just in terms of like physical capability, but also your ability to be able to process the energy and the food that you need to in those kind of temperatures. Um, it's extremely challenging because you need probably around 30,000 calories, something like that. But I can assure you that trying to eat in 52 degrees heat in the middle of the day in Death Valley, um, let's just say food is very, very dry tasting at that point. There's no saliva in your mouth and just trying to get it down is 
just really, really t difficult and to keep it down. And don't forget, you know, it's not just eating in the heat. It's the fact that your um, your intestines, your bowels, everything in your stomach is bouncing around because you're running. So that creates irritation as well. And then you add this food that you could barely swallow. And all of a sudden, I can assure you, you do want to chunder quite quickly. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely not uh, a race for the faint hearted, is what I would say. Is it a bit of a siren song in a way that it keeps drawing you back, despite the fact that it's just overwhelmingly challenging? I think that that's aid stations in general. It, it does call you back. Badwater does. Aid stations in general are like, you know, the mermaids on the rocks, aren't they? They kind of back you in out of the wilderness and you come in and they give you a seat and they're like, oh, just, just take a seat. Let me get this for you. And the next thing you know, you've been there for 20 minutes. So um, beware the aid station sirens for sure. <laughs> and we touched on um moab just before we talked about um bad water and what was your first attempt at, at that like that was the, <laughs> so that's 240 miles isn't that uh yeah it was spectacular in all the wrong ways is what I <laughs> um, <laughs> so moab is um it's a 240 mile um non-stop foot race uh, around Canyonlands and the Sal Mountains of Moab, Utah. Again, like for anyone listening, uh, Death Valley, Moab, two of the most spectacular places I've, I've ever been. Absolutely beautiful. Um, they look like your stereotypical kind of Wild West landscape, big, huge red rock bluffs, all those kind of things. And here you are getting to run through these amazing places. So um, Moab, uh, the first year was in 2019, um, went out obviously um, to run the race, didn't really know too much about sleep deprivation. Um, so I was running, you know, a lot quicker than I thought I would actually for those kind of conditions. And we came up into a real crux of the race, which is mile 170 to mile 200 through the La Salle Mountains. Now, uh, temperatures in La Salle in October can you know drop to anywhere up to about minus eight. So it was a pretty chilly night and I pushed all night. I didn't want to sleep because I was just, you know, really worried about kind of getting, you know, hypothermia or getting really cold on the side of the trail. So I just kept pushing through with my pacer. And we got into mile 200 Giza Pass aid station at around 6am and the sun was just coming up and uh, my crew came over and they said, oh, you know, you've, you've done great coming through the mountains. You're in 15th place. So I was like, wow, you know, 40 miles to go out of 240, you know, bizarrely doesn't sound that much um, at that point. And you're thinking, well, OK, let's just let's keep this party going. So. Uh, they said, how was the night? I said, well, you know, I, I met a couple of cowboys on the trail and I was convinced I'd had a full on conversation with these cowboys. So I hallucinated the whole story. Um, and we moved out of the aid station and my buddy paced me down to the, the next aid station, which was 20 miles away. And I kept kind of just sitting on the floor and getting really emotional very uh, uncertain as to where I was and kept asking him saying, why, why we, I thought we were finished. Why are we running this race again? So I came into the last aid station. I was still miraculously uh, in 15th place. And uh, my, uh, my crew said to me, right, you, you need to be done before sundown. It's going to get cold again. Let's, let's get your kit minimal, minimalized. We've just got, you know, 20 miles to go now. You've got plenty of time. Let's, let's just get this done. So they uh, lightened my 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 pack. They you know took a couple of layers off me, and 
um, we agreed that I'd try and get finished before sundown, which I think was around seven, I don't know, something like that. So um, off I started down the trail. Um, and after about 500 metres, I would say something like that, I became really dazed and disorientated and was wandering off into the bushes. Um, now, this went on for, for a number of hours. And eventually I wandered out of the bushes to be confronted with a witch. Um, and I was convinced that this witch was um, chasing me down the trail. So I ran away from the witch. Um, now, it started to get dark and I was still convinced that I was being chased by a witch. And um, I continued to run as, as quickly as I could. And eventually I fell over. And this part of the section of the trail is called Porcupine Rim. And on the one side, you've got these huge drop offs, uh, you know, thousands of feet down into the Colorado River. And on the other side, there's just these huge boulders. So um, I fell over, cut my hands and my knees and I was in a bit of pain. But I did the only thing I could do, which was to run away from the witch and hide under the boulder. So uh, like the brave man that I am, I went and hid under a boulder and I could hear the witch closing in and um, she, she was shouting, Scott, where are you? Where are you? And eventually the witch kind of found me hide, hide, hiding under this rock and she just poked her head in and she went, what are you doing under there? And I went away with you, witch. And she went, I'm not a witch. I'm your fucking wife. <laughs> Now, apologies for the curse word, but that was factually correct. And I'm factually correct that she is. Uh, no, I'm joking. Uh, she's not. She's an absolute <laughs> angel and she's been amazing in supporting me. But um, that was uh, the story of Moab in in 2019 was I um, hallucinated, thought my wife was a witch, wouldn't come back. <laughs> <laughs> and she's still with you and she's still, I'm still with her. You, I'm still with her. Yeah, she's very fortunate. <laughs> no, I'm the fortunate one. Um, but I uh, I did sadly drop from 15th to 35th place in the last 20 miles of a 240 mile race. Now, um, after I finished, which, by the way, turned out to be like 3 a.m. rather than 6 p.m. the night before, uh, <laughs> I. Uh, I was really, really kind of sleep deprived and broken by the whole experience. And I knew I'd made some mistakes. And I, I really believe, you know, the, the true learnings of failure is not just saying, oh, you know, let's take the learnings. I think that the true quality of learning from failure is actually, can you take the learnings and apply them to a situation that's similar in the future and overcome what previously caused you to fail to, to get that successful outcome? Um, and I'm not saying I get it right. I still get it wrong. But in 2021, I went back to the Moab 240 in Utah, got myself in a very similar situation, um, ran through the night, minus four, came into the 200 mile aid station, came out of there. Um, and actually, this time I, I took the decision to, to sleep in that difficult scenario. Um, and I slept for an hour. Uh, I'd actually slept earlier in the race this time around as well. Um, and the great thing was that in 2019, I had a guy, American guy I'd never met before who helped the witch to get me out from under the rock, a guy called Jason Wooden. In 2021, he came back to the race just to pace me over the last 40 miles. And um, we ran past the boulder that I'd hidden under two years prior. Um, and this time the sun was only just coming up, but it was a day earlier 
and um, I was able to finish in 15th place and um, yeah, set the British record for that course, which is 77 hours. So it's funny how things work out, right? I've got the 15th place two years later and it was down to the person that saved me to in two years prior to that. That's incredible. And also kind of testimony to the, to the idea of needing to reframe failure as experience, yeah. really. Um, even, even the word itself um, just immediately has those negative connotations. But if we don't, we can fail well, we can fail forwards, can't we? I think to, I think it's Brené Brown I, I think, to crib that phrase. Yeah, failure sounds like such a bad word, but it's, it's, it's not. It's actually, yeah, you're right. It's learnings and it's having the courage to apply those learnings in the future when you have those difficult scenarios, you know, I feel like I've, I've learned some of my biggest learnings have been out some of the biggest failures, I would say. And what's your relationship with the word comeback um, in association with that second Moab experience? Am I right in thinking that that year in 2021, that was kind of part of a, a series of endurance challenges that you chosen to undertake? And I wonder what kind of determined your, your choices around that schedule and then how did that journey map out in reality yeah yeah definitely I, I think comeback's a nice way of putting it I, I yeah I made some mistakes so in 2021 I, I ran Badwater successfully as I alluded to earlier I went back to the UK and then came back two and a half weeks later and um, I got into all sorts of bother in a race called the Bigfoot 200 in the Pacific Northwest which is a 200 mile point to point race up there in uh, Washington, it's very remote, it's very rugged, very mountainous and, and quite a dangerous course. And um, I made mistakes. I left my water bottles, uh, my water bladder in London. Um, I thought the temperature was going to be mid 20s. Actually, on the first day of the race, 42 degrees Celsius. I didn't have enough water, got dehydrated. Ended up dropping out at mile 160 of a 200 mile race, which is pretty difficult uh, to take. I got lost disorientated and sleep deprived in the forest uh, and the reason for that was simply just because I got so dehydrated on the first day I'd fallen so far behind that I couldn't sleep because I was chasing the calves essentially um, and it was a, a major kick up the butt for me um, then I was meant to go to Tahoe 200 which got cancelled due to forest fires which gave me a clean uh, bill of health to kind of run into Moab and yeah, I felt like I had two dragons to slay, really, which were obviously the 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 missed opportunity in in twenty nineteen, and then obviously having come, such a difficult experience of Bigfoot to come out and and kind of put in that performance at Moab, I was really really proud of and pleased of. Um, and then yeah, did manage um, in twenty twenty two to uh, go back to Bigfoot and tackle Sasquatch, and was able to overcome that one this time as well again you know learning from the failures learning from the mistakes and I was able to kind of finish that one um in around 82 hours I think it was which is it sounds you know crazy when it's, you're thinking wow it's 240 it did that quicker than 200 but the reality was that the Bigfoot is such a tough and remote rugged mountain race it's just it's comparing apples with oranges they're not the same type of race and so much of it is, as you've alluded to, a mental game. Um, and I wonder what your perspective on mental fortitude is. Oh, that's a big question. Um, it's something that I'm still trying to, to learn. Um, I think resilience and, and fortitude 
isn't a fixed trait. I think it's something that needs to be nurtured and developed. And quite often, some of the biggest steps forward in in developing mental fortitude or, or resilience, I think, come from those those failures. You know, having those difficult situations puts you in a in a better position when you encounter them again in the future. I guess it's like a little bit like building up layers of calluses on your hand, right? There's different ways, different skills to add to it all the time. Um, I do think that you know training our our, our mind is probably just as important as training our body when it comes to these uh, ultra endurance races. And I read a, a book called, um, what was it called? Mind Gym by Gary Mack, probably about 10 years ago now. It was a long time ago. Um, it was really interesting. And he talked about um, his time as a professional sports psychologist at sports teams in the US. And he talked about, uh, this analogy and it's kind of stuck with me was that when you get an amateur golfer go onto the golf tee of a, a tough hole there's water hazards there's sand bunkers the first thing they think of is oh my god there's a, a water hazard over there and by doing that they've already pre-positioned their their brain to go well let's hit the ball in the water then and that's what happens but then you know you get Rory McIlroy or you know, Tiger Woods in his heyday and they step onto the, the tee and the first thing they think is, I'm going to put that ball, you know, two feet to the left of that pin. By doing that, they fought positively and, and guess what? That's what they end up doing. They don't hit it into the water. And I think that's the same thing with some of these big ultra endurance events is that you can psych yourself out and I don't do that. I just think to myself, right, you know, let's break it down section by section. What's the first section? What's the second section? What's the 20th section look like? Don't get ahead of yourself. Just think about there's the big goal and these are the steps I need to take to get to that big goal. And that, that's for me is, you know, works really well. And I think that's allowed me to develop that mental fortitude and confidence um, to take, you know, not just into running, but also outside of work. Because when you do something like that, you realise that actually, as I said earlier, you can do anything you put your mind to. You just got to take, take the steps to challenge yourself. I guess it's that openness and curiosity as well when you're faced with a problem and reframing it as, oh, that's interesting. What am I going to do about it? Rather than, oh, well, that's it then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. We'll give up, just throw our hands up and walk off. Actually, it is, it is that and thinking, okay, how do we move forward? How can I move around this obstacle? What's next? And, you know, it could be physical. It could be, you know, there's a massive water crossing or you've got to run through a, a night section. It could be anything, but put the problem into perspective and find a way to move forward. You've given back in, in so many ways through the things that you've challenged yourself with. But what would you say is the most significant thing that running has given to you over the years? Hmm. I don't want to rush my answer on this. So I'm just going to have a little think for a second. I think confidence. And I, I don't mean to kind of um, sound overly confident by saying that or sound arrogant or anything like that. That's not what I mean. I think the confidence in myself to to kind of take on new challenges and, and push myself to, to realise that, you know, through hard work and determination, you can achieve whatever you want to achieve if you put the hard yards in for it. And, you know, 
if you'd asked me 15 years ago, would I be living in London, you know, working for Johnson and Johnson as a regional sales manager, I probably would have said no. I didn't go to, you know, an Ivy League college or Oxbridge or, you know, have a fancy um, degree or anything like that. But I think, you know, running's given me the confidence to realize that, you know, you can learn things, you can learn skills that will help you to accomplish what your life goals are. And running gave me, running Boston to Austin gave me that confidence to move towards, okay, actually, you know, why don't I put my CV in for that job? I, you know, I've got anatomical experience. Why don't I take that step to apply for an interview, whatever it may be? And actually, you know, my final interview for a sales position back, you know, in 2013 when I joined J&J um, was a presentation. And the title of the presentation was Blood, Sweat and Tears. And I was like, well, I think I can uh, I can cover that a little bit with some of Boston to Austin running. And actually, you know, again the example of confidence like i talked about earlier in in this call was um you know when i was younger probably i was shy like i would wouldn't want to ring the takeaway because i wouldn't want to upset people i know that sounds silly but like you know i would get embarrassed about things like that i was never the person in the club that would be you know chatting up all the girls or going out with like this big personality i was always kind of quite not timid but i think you know it's given me that confidence to go actually you know i could walk into that hotel and say look, I'm really sorry to bother you. Please could I have a, a, a quick chat to you about something I'm doing for charity and explaining to them the why, the why that I'm out there, you know, raising the money and then, you know, following up with, look, I'm not after much, just after a, a room for the night or you know, a little bit of food. Um, is there anything you can do? You know, nine people might say no, but the 10th might say yes. So actually, you know, confidence is the key learning from running for me. Mm, that's really interesting that kind of you can have your motivations for doing something but actually being able to articulate your why uh, we find yeah. that really difficult don't we in life yeah definitely and I, I think that's something I've learned to to kind of do or at least hope to do is you know that is my why in my in my work our, our why is is the patient and trying to get the products to be able to allow surgeons to treat their patients and my why in, in ultra running is to raise money for Operation Smile. I'm quite happy with, with both those whys and it allows me to, to go and have an adventure um, and keep trying to do the good things that I can, I suppose. And I know because you said earlier in our conversation that, yeah, you are someone who always likes to be thinking of the next thing. So what does 2023 currently look like for you? Um, the next thing is I'm not too, uh, getting too far ahead of myself, but I am um, due to run uh, the Tahoe 200 ultramarathon in Lake Tahoe in California on June the 16th. So I'm currently training for that. Um, it's a very technical course. I think it's got 38,000 feet of elevation, incline and decline. Um, it takes place at a, around about an average height of, I think, about 10,000 feet up. So it's pretty high up. So that presents its own challenges in terms of altitude. Um, there's obviously a significant number of bears in the Tahoe Lake uh, Basin area, which is a problem that I need to consider. Um and then the other thing that has recently come to my attention is the um, record-breaking amount of snow that they've had in the Sierra Nevada mountains this winter. So they've actually had over 700 inches of snow during the course of the winter, uh, which is, I believe, somebody will have to fact-check me on this, but I think it's about 60 or 70 foot 
the snow. And you think, well, you know, the UK comes crashing to a halt for one centimetre. Uh, <laughs> meanwhile, they're just cracking on with stuff out there. And that's what I intend to do at this ultra is go on, crack on with it and do the best that I can. And is it the landscape in the States that that draws you over there? I think because there's, there's quite a consistency in the races that you choose. They are all USA based. Yeah, they? I've done, I've you know, I've done my time in the UK as well. I've done like I've run the Grand Union Canal. I know you're up in the Birmingham area. I've run the Grand yeah. Union twice from London to to uh, from Birmingham to London, I should say, and done Liverpool Leeds and Bristol to London. And I've done some of the hundred milers that Centurion put on. Um, I think the environment in the States is is quite exciting. I think like the ultra running in there over in the States is a really big sport um, by comparison to, to other countries in the world. I would say it's definitely not a big sport. Let's be honest, it's not spectator friendly. Um, <laughs> but I, there's a lot of hype, a lot of excitement around the races, which I quite enjoy the buzz of building up to these big almost expeditions in a way, you know, whereas if I'm doing a hundred mile here, you know, you know, just over a weekend, I get up on a Saturday morning, run it and done Sunday morning and, and that's it. Whereas these, you know, they're big prominent landmarks in my calendar to look forward to um, and to be enjoyed and to, you know, build up to raise money for them uh, for, for Operation Smile. Um, and then you're rewarded in a way for all that training, all the fundraising, all, all the build up by getting to run in a beautiful environment, but more often than not a really harsh landscape as well. So, you know, you're going to get that that physical challenge of not just running 200 miles, but you know, can you deal with all the snow, with all the bears, all those different things. So it becomes a more interesting dynamic in the race as well, because it's not just about who's quickest. It's about, you know, who can look after themselves in the mountains for, you know, 80 hours, you know, who can make sure that they get their sleep uh, right. You sleep too much, you're going to be too slow. You sleep too little, you're going to get sleep deprived. All the calorie elements, can you deal with the wildlife? You know, it's one thing encountering a cow in a field. It's another thing when you've got a mountain lion in your, in your midst at 2 a.m. on the side of a mountain in the middle of nowhere. Uh, those are the kind of challenges that people don't perhaps get in the UK as much. And my final question is the one that I ask all of my guests, which is what does joy mean to you? Um, it's a great question. What does joy? Well, it's obviously happiness. And I think for me, joy for me will be the analogy I gave at the beginning of this podcast in that if I can be old and be sat on the sofa and no longer able to run and look back and go, wow, weren't those memories great? You know, not just like, oh, what did I watch on Netflix last week? Like, remember that time that me and Reese ran across Death Valley? Or remember that time we went, you know, ran, ran 240 miles um, and then think, oh, yeah, I did that. And also remember that we raised, you know, X amount for Operation Smile. Um, I think that'll bring me joy and, and fulfillment in that I'll be able to look back and go, yeah, I had an adventure. I did some good. I am so grateful to the community that is growing around the podcast. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, I would so appreciate if you can share it with your communities and help spread the message of support, perseverance and joy further. 
If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests, you can find me on Instagram at running underscore on underscore joy. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time for Running on Joy.